It's episode 89 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. With me is J.P. Breen. And taking over for Ryan this week is James Langer from Brew Crew Ball. James, how are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no problem. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself, because, again, you've been writing for Brew Crew Ball. How long has that been? Oh, geez. I mean, we go way back. I mean, all of us kind of go back to the Disciples of Euchre days, right? But I think Brew Crew Ball has been maybe two years now. Time flies. That sounds about right. About two years I joined on there and, you know, help them out. So it's been fun. Yeah, the Disciples of Euchre stuff, everybody was kind of there and then scattered again after a few years, so... It, it's yeah, it's still know, somewhat, we all somewhat each active. On Twitter yeah. all the time anyway. So exactly, JP is the biggest yeller of the group, right? Constant uh, cop la- uh, cap lock online or on the podcast? Because on the podcast, I think I do, I'm like the most prone to actually yelling about something. Well, yeah, that that's true. But online too, I know you want to use those caps. Look, if I if I lose this week in fantasy again, I'm I'm borderline going to get mad online. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to bring up you had your mini pod this week. It was the yeah. first of, or should we look for this weekly? Yeah, that's a, that's going to be the plan going forward, other than um, maybe a couple of weeks when I have to potentially drive across the country. But aside from that, uh, it's going to be kind of a weekly thing. I'm shooting for recording on Tuesday nights and going into Wednesdays. So it'll be various things, whether it's interviews, whether it's I did kind of a deep dive in, in a single topic last week where I just kind of wanted to present an argument and kind of do something a little bit more singularly focused than we're able to do on the podcast here because there are there are three of us and we got to get through a bunch of stuff over the course of a week so i talked about uh jeff supon and trying to kind of i don't know reclaim his reclaim his status is is like not the worst brewers pitcher of all time yeah exactly you seem to be more of an academic than a marketing professional because i don't think anybody else would start out podcast number one with jeff supon but it was Look, good. It was I, good. I was like, sometimes, you know what? I decided that I, it, my like in my head, what I wanted to do was actually like present an argument that a bunch of people were going to get mad about. And then everyone was kind of like, yeah, that's fair. And I was like, great. Um, <laughs> which is, is really good for our listeners, right? That means, you know, they're, they're open to argument. They're open to being able to do, do these things. I actually did get like four or five different uh, direct messages kind of like offering really thoughtful uh, kind of I don't know rebuttals against certain points uh, which was nice to be able to go into those things with some people um, so you know if you listen to one of the midi pods and you disagree with something and you don't want to put it on Twitter and you want to, to you know send me a message or an email more than happy to it was a good good discussion for some folks yeah send a DM to what's your new Twitter handle ghost runner on second yep Ghost Runner on second. So uh, look for JP there. Hey, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And James, what's your Twitter handle? At James L. James is with a Y because my parents we're creative so it's j-a-y-m-e-s-l that means you're creative too right i would like to think so but sometimes it doesn't work out that way yeah so hey give james a follow uh on twitter as well uh and then finally if you want to support the podcast you can visit patreon.com slash mke tailgate our mnb and ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by carbon four brewing and their english style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades you know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Some current spring and summer seasonals that are now available include Tokyo Sauna Pale Ale, Fruit Punch Fantasy Factory IPA, Radicats New England Style IPA, and you can start looking for cans of America AF Watermelon Kolsch. So when it gets real warm, I think that's the one. Are you, well, I know, JP, you're not, you're not a drinker, but James, you like to go grab a beer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and actually, Carbon Four is probably one of my favorite breweries in Madison. I'm I'm in Madison now, so I like to visit there pretty frequently. Not that I'm angling for a free drink or anything, but but probably if, one of my favorites. I was gonna say, but if anybody is over at Carbon Four, I mean, if anybody if anybody happens to catch me at Carbon Four, yeah, by all means, 
There you go. Buy James a drink if you see him there. Also, get 20% off of merch at the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. As always, check out carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. Okay, so we finished uh, Saturday night. Uh, the Brewers had a win, and it was a marathon game. So a show of hands for who made it through 18 innings. I know I didn't. I watched the end of it. I watched the last two innings. Yeah, no, I caught the last at bat. I wasn't sitting through five and a half hours. So <laughs> yeah, that was, it was uh, it was a long one, and I think anybody who had a, a long Saturday definitely that was a way to you know that drained all energy by the end of the night because that one really took a while. Yeah, I mean, I was I was out, and I didn't think the game was still on when I turned the TV on when I walked in, and it happened to be the last inning. I, you know, it's it's hard to to expect those things to go. They literally played two games, eighteen innings. They, so they did, and we'll kind of get into some of the moves they had to make after the game. But uh, the big um, performance last night was probably ryan braun who went uh six for eight and in his last three games he's gone 11 for 16 and he's raised his average from 194 to 263 in three games so i guess uh jp we'll start with you um are are we getting back to more of what we can expect out of ryan braun after a pretty rough stretch there to end april i mean i i i would uh, like to think so it i don't think he's gonna go you know, he's not going to hit 11 for 16 in, in the course of too many series. But I think the, it was a really interesting interview with Ryan Braun earlier in which he was talking about the fact that his swing actually felt good. But he said his plate discipline was, has been dreadful for the vast majority of the year, which I think is probably fair. And he said that one of the biggest things and he got some time off being able to come back, kind of reset in terms of his plate discipline. He's also... I, you could actually start to see, I thought one of his, his better performances was on, on Friday night against Steven Matz because Brian and I, and something I tweeted about as well, but it's sometimes you can see when Ryan Braun feels good at the plate. Like he's got a little bit, you can see when he's tracking pitches, you can see when he's starting to actually look for individual pitches because he's trying to get, you know, he's basically dialing it in a little bit and when he just misses them, you can see when he's sometimes he's frustrated and sometimes he's, you know, you can kind of see him say like, yep, yep. Getting closer. And he was able to get a couple from, from Matt's and one he crushed and they were saying it was the, you know, the hardest pitch he had ever hit. And he was like, well, in the stat cast era, that doesn't really go back that far. So I don't necessarily know if that's the hardest pitch he's ever hit, but he's, he does look like he is feeling better at the plate. And we've actually seen it in the numbers, but I, I don't know. Like I was, I am a little bit sad. It's great to have James here, but I was wanting to ask Ryan if he thinks it's the swing, the swing change or the swing plane revolution that is causing this like mini breakout, I suppose, of Ryan Braun. Yeah. James, do you, do you think you've seen anything the last few days that's different with Braun or is it just a matter of he's getting his feel at the plate again? I mean, you look at the, the last plate appearance he had in the 18 inning game, the, the game winner. I mean, there was the, the, you know, coming up with a guy who would literally walk the bases loaded and you could almost kind of tell that, that Ryan wanted to swing <laughs> and be the hero and deliver the game winning hit. But he, he did hold up on a couple of those balls before he finally got one that he, you know, took the opposite way. So I think, you know, since he's being more conscious about the, the plate discipline, it seems like, you know, that's that's kind of improved things the past couple of days, whether or not that sticks around for the next week or two or if it's just a good series, you know, it's probably re- remained to be seen. But I think it, it is at least encouraging to see that. Yeah, I guess what kind of boost do you think he'll add to the lineup? I mean, it, it's kind of obvious, but, you know, they've had some slow starts between Braun and Aguilar and Shaw. I, how much does that just help cover for the fact that, you know, like, Yelich had to take some time off and Kane's probably going to need a few days off. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing was that bronze kind of mini resurgence or his, his mini hot streak came when Yelich had to, to miss some time with his back. And the same thing with Jesus Aguilar, actually, he started to kind of pick it up a little bit when other guys were on the bench. And so that is, you know, I, it's funny because you hear rock talk about, 
you know, it's guys picking each other up. And I don't know how much of that is, is true. How much other guys are kind of like putting more on their shoulders because they realize the one person that they've been relying on for the vast majority of their offensive production was out. And how much is, it's just kind of, you know, a coincidence that these things happen when they, when they needed it. Um, you know, we've seen, in previous starts where just kind of all the pitchers were bad at the same time. We saw it last year, just prior to the all-star break when you saw everyone just exhausted and all the pitching and the, the hitting kind of went sour at the same time. If you can line things up like they've been able to do, it, it works and it looks good. But I think Ryan Braun being able to, to be productive is, is obviously a great opportunity for the, for the team. But what I will say is that actually Ben Gamble was pretty good when Braun was out. And so, so Gamble has really, I think, offered a nice compliment. Like a, he's, he in so many ways is exactly what you want in a fourth outfielder. Yeah. And he, we actually have a Patreon question from PB Brew Crew. And he asked, what are, what's everybody's thoughts on Ben Gamble, uh, his play, and how he fits onto the team so far? Yeah. I mean, like, like JP just said, he, he's pretty much the ideal fourth outfielder, right? Like he, can cover all three positions defensively, and he's done a pretty solid job of that. Um, if you need him to make a week's worth of starts like the Brewers had to this week, he's been able to fill in and um, actually probably surpassed expectations this past week. Um, but, you know, he sure he doesn't hit for the power that Domingo Santana does, but he's been able to uh, be more valuable with the, with the glove. Um, I think, you know, everybody kind of – latched on to Santana's hot start with the Mariners and started wondering if it was a bad trade or if they made a mistake. But, you know, since, since those first few weeks, I think Santana's started to come down. I think he's actually got a negative war, uh, probably because of the defense. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, Gamble, um, you know, you couldn't ask for more. And I think it's kind of, uh, in a nutshell, the argument for why he's on the team in Domingo Santana isn't, yeah, I think one of the most interesting things is, I think James is exactly right to talk about, you know, Santana's kind of struggling recently. He's actually played himself down Seattle's batting order, too. They've actually dropped him recently. He didn't play today. And Ben Gamble last year hit 270, uh, 272, 358, uh, 370. So he didn't hit for all that much home. Uh, all that much power, but he was, you know, he's a one to one and a half win player, depending on, you know, which flavor of war you want to use for the defensive purposes. But this year he's hitting 270, 265, 378, pretty much the exact same numbers. He's still producing a uh, pretty good offense and he's on pace to be about a, you know, one and a half, two win player. And if that's your fourth outfielder to be able to give the flexibility to be left-handed, to be able to, to, um, offer the defensive value that he can give at all of the different positions. And, to be honest, like I, it, this doesn't play into the player evaluation at all. But for the way you know Matt Gamble, I think a lot was made for him to be able to come in and kind of be this offensive savior for the team. And then he went through the knee injuries, and it was a really sad time, especially because it, when he first went down with that knee injury, Matt Gamble was like really starting to hit the ball well, like he was really starting to kind of come on, and it was pretty heartbreaking to see it happen. And so, kind of having. Ben Gamble to come back and have that that family connection to be able to do it is is one of those like nice stories to be able to come back and root for somebody that you kind of like saw some you saw his brother kind of have a really unfortunate end to his career. Yeah, James, how important is Gamble's just defensive versatility to this team? <clears throat> I mean, I think it's it's huge. You know, um, with Santana, you were kind of limited to right field. You couldn't put him anywhere else when he was playing. Um, Gamble, you know, not even if Christian Yelich is out, but if Lorenzo Cain needs a day, you can get by with him in center field for a day or two. Or, you know, when Braun needs one of his, you know, just maintenance days where he's not in the lineup, you're fine plugging him in too, you know. Um, and you know he's going to give you solid defense and give you good at-bats in the lineup too. He may not hit for a ton of power, kind of like what JP was saying, but he, he can get on base at a decent enough rate. Um, and if he's a two-win player as a bench player, it's hard to beat that, especially for a team like the Brewers where you you don't have maybe the resources to stack up the bench with a bunch of veteran players. 
um, he, he's a nice little piece to have. Well, and I think the other piece too is is the defensive versatility is there, but but he's a different profile of guy that than they have in a lot of other places. You know, he's he's a guy that's going to walk a lot. Uh, he's not going to hit for that much power, but he's going to get on base a ton. And I was just looking at it's early season defensive numbers, so you know, just bear with me on it. But he, in terms of his defensive run saved, he's above average in left, center, and right thus far this year. And it's not much because it has, you know, they haven't played all that many games. It's just, you know, three defensive runs saved in left, just one in center, one in right field. But the fact that, you know, he's offering uh, kind of positive value there rather than getting in a place in which, you know, you're, you're kind of like, you know, when Eric Thames is in right field, and you're like, you can probably, yeah, I guess we can deal with that for a day or so. Like, let's not make that a habit. Uh, when Ben Gamble's out there, it's it, it's something that, to, to be honest, I don't even notice, which is something that I think is a positive. Like, that's not, I don't want to be able to pay attention to guys defensively, other than, obviously, when Orlando Arcia is able to make a great play. Like, there are some guys that you just want to watch play defense, but the vast majority of it, I'd prefer to not recognize that they're there. Yeah. Another guy who showed some signs of life this week, uh, Jesus Aguilar, uh, finally figured out how to hit home runs again. And he did it for first game. He finally hit one out. He decided to go and hit two. Um, and he followed that up, uh, the following day with another home run. All this was against the Rockies. Uh, James, did you see anything different with Aguilar in these plate appearances that, give some hope that, you know, this will be a jumping off point for the rest of the season? Um, I think he's just swinging with authority. I think for a lot of part of that first month where he was struggling, I think that the slump got to a point where he was almost like, okay, I just have to try to make contact. And he's taking these half-week swings, um, trying not to strike out. And that's just really not his game. You know, he he is more than a power hitter, but He's, he's not necessarily there just to try to make contact and avoid striking out. So I think the home runs were huge in getting that confidence back that, yeah, you can hit it and it'll carry over the fence. I think even before the home runs, it, it started to look like he was turning around. I think I think I remember in the, in the Mets series in New York, he put a really good swing or two on the ball and just carried and died at the warning track. But, I mean, he, he hit it hard. Um, so I think now we're starting to get those results coming through. Um, and it's just really encouraging to see. So, so are you suggesting that it wasn't the call with Andres Galarraga that really turned everything around just before the game in which he hit two homers? Uh, probably not. No. Tough, man. That was a good story. <laughs> it was. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to lean on that. But it was also good to see. I mean, he hit with authority. And he also, one of those, he took opposite field. Or was it two of the home runs? Yeah, I think it was two of them. It was yeah. it was the second one he hit on Monday, and yeah. then the one he hit on Tuesday were both opposite field shots. So, you know, again, kind of like vintage Jesus too. I mean, you go back to last year; a lot of those were were opposite field shots. So, I mean, that's encouraging to see. Yeah. So Lorenzo Cain just made a big catch in in Sunday's game. Uh, hopefully, he doesn't suffer any long term damage from that one because he went. It was all out into the wall. So uh, nice little. Flip to Yelich to get the throw in. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. He was on the ground. He had to get the ball in the infield, so use Yelich to do that. So uh, we don't know at the moment what happened. I know he's a little slow to get up, but hopefully he'll be all right and won't miss too much time. Now, Yelich did return to the lineup uh, for Sunday's game, and um, his second at-bat, he ended up taking one into the third deck. So it, it's good to see that that back must be healed. Um Again, JP, we kind of saw some guys cover for Yelich, but again, if we have the rest of the offense start to pick it up and then you add Christian Yelich to the mix, how good can this offense be going forward? I think it, it can continue to be one of the, the top in the NL. They're they're deep. They're better than they were last year, and I think the offense was, you know, league average-ish in the in the NL last year, and they have the ability to, to go even higher. Um and I think one of the most interesting things that they've got this year that they didn't have last year is a, a little bit more redundancy in terms of you have Yelich going out, you have Braun needing days off. They have guys that they can stick in. It was the same thing when you know Jesus Aguilar got off to a rough start and they were like, well, maybe we need to give more time to Eric Thames. And he actually, hit, I think he's got five home runs already. And 
they've got that built-in redundancy to be able to deal with um, injuries, unexpected, uh, poor performances. They have the ability to kind of shuffle things around. And and the team that you see doing it the best in the NL is is the Dodgers. And you can see that the Brewers are trying to do something a little bit a little bit similar to that. Obviously, not at the same level because they don't have the monetary resources to kind of just take bad contracts, dump guys to be able to continue to develop that depth. But I think, yeah, I think that they could be the third or fourth best offense in, in the NL, depending on kind of where you place guys. Uh, I think the Dodgers and the Cardinals probably are a little bit better, but I would put the Brewers off the top of my head. Maybe the, maybe the Phillies have a shot, have a shout there, but I would probably put the Brewers at the, the third best offense at the NL, especially if everyone's healthy. Okay. So going back earlier in the week, uh, the Brewers split with the Rockies in their four game series. Um, what was interesting was game three, Chase Anderson was a late scratch. Uh, he goes to the DL with a broken blister and callus on his finger. So Corbin Burns was activated early. Uh, Jacob Barnes was used as the opener and then Burns came in and, and really struggled. Um, but they then used him again in the 18 inning game. He came in during, I don't know, do we call it during regulation? during the first nine innings <laughs> and um he actually first pitched two games yeah yeah he actually pitched really well for uh two and a thirds innings so like when he was prepared he looked pretty good out there as opposed to kind of getting thrust into a game which was unexpected um i guess my question is are we going to see a more effective corbin burns out of the bullpen now that he's prepared for that to be his role i mean you that's where he was most effective last year, right? And that was always the argument from those who, who kind of wanted him pulled from the rotation right away was, well, we know that he's good there. Um, at the same time, last year was only, what, like 38, 40 innings or something like that in the regular season. So you could easily argue it was a small sample size there too. And we didn't really know what to expect from Corbin Burns as a reliever. Um, I think... Pitching in the shorter stretches might allow him to, to focus more on where he's putting that fastball and maybe try to work on that slider, which was, you know, such a good pitch for him when he was coming up. Um, but for whatever reason, he seemed to kind of get away from that in the rotation this year. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, the hope is right that pitching in one or two inning spurts, you can maybe put him in a, situation to succeed where he doesn't have to face the middle of the Cardinals order or, you know, you can, you can kind of pick and choose your spots and you can build up some confidence while also kind of working on those location issues. JP, what do you think he can, do you think there's something he can learn in the bullpen before returning to the starting rotation? Because I I don't think anybody here really feels like long-term Corbin Burns is only a relief pitcher. Yeah, I mean, frankly, no. Uh, I don't think that there's going to be much. You know, you could say that he can work on his command in the zone or something like that, but first time through the order, there's not a huge premium on that in the first place. He's not necessarily going to work on, you know, his changeup all that often. Though we did end up seeing that a little bit more. So, you know, kind of put an asterisk by that, and we'll see if he ends up throwing it. Because the biggest thing for Burns is that he was. Even in spring, we were talking about the fact that basically he was adding a fifth pitch to his arsenal. And once he started to to pitch this year, he basically was a two-pitch guy. And he was a two-pitch guy that didn't necessarily command his fastball in the zone all that much. And I don't necessarily know how that solves itself in the bullpen. I mean, he only threw his curveball under 6% of the time. He threw his his changeup maybe 5% of the time, if you want to be generous. So he wasn't doing basically anything other than fastball slider. And it'll be interesting to see if he ends up moving to the starting rotation uh, eventually. Um, I still think that he has the tools to do it. I still think he has the ability to potentially be, you know, a number three, if, if everything goes really well, he could, he could catapult himself to a consistent number two starter, but in order to do it, he's got to be able to, to place his fastball more. Does, does his stuff play up when he comes out of the bullpen? Like, is he able to just kind of bring a little extra intensity with those shorter uh, appearances that allows him to get away with some of the mistakes he couldn't when he was starting? 
I don't I don't think so. Um, it's it's certainly possible. I think he's kind of a max effort guy the vast majority of the time. I don't think his velocity was any better as a, as a reliever, like markedly better. I'm sure it was a little bit better. But I was looking at some of the numbers that he was that he's been putting up this year, and first time through the order, like it's not really any better than it had been. Like he's still giving up a 364 batting average. Uh, like in yeah, his batting average on balls and play is massive. Um, and he's striking out almost 40%. The, the, the one thing I will say that does look like he could potentially maximize his stuff as a reliever is if you look at his, uh, his strikeout rate kind of as it goes, it's, it's 39% first time through the order. Second time through the order, it goes all the way down to 19.4%, and then it's 16.7% the third time through the order. So the numbers do suggest that Second time through, guys aren't necessarily missing all that much, but I do think that that's more of a product of the fact that he's basically just been fastball slider all year, and he's not actually utilizing his whole his whole his whole arsenal. Yeah, I mean, he was still leaving a few balls up uh, when he had the good appearance against the Mets, um, so I don't think that problem was necessarily solved. It's just again fewer at bats, so there are fewer opportunities to really get tagged. Well, um, and I think that he should actually be pitching up more with his fastball I think well I and I I said that wrong he wasn't elevating it in the zone it was just it was middle of the zone he wasn't getting it either up or down that still seems to be an issue yeah he ends up like basically throwing a belt high which is the problem right like I wrote something for baseball prospectus a few weeks ago saying if you have a high spin rate fastball uh in general you start you have started to see the last couple of years that guys maximize that by pitching up in the zone um and he doesn't really do that and I was kind of trying to, to show Verlander and, and what Verlander does with this fastball and then to get to his, his curveball and how just vastly different their approaches are with their fastball. And that's a question of like whether or not that's game plan, whether or not that's execution, his ability to throw it up there. But what you don't generally want to do is consistently throw with the belt. I, I, that doesn't really do anything for you. Is there something about Burns's mechanics that makes it difficult for him to like get the ball up in the zone? Because he has kind of a short stride, wouldn't you say? I, when I see him pitch, I think for the kind of pitcher he is, he doesn't have that real long stride. He's a real short strider, kind of short arm action. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I actually I, I would need to to think and look at it a little bit more. I don't I don't have a good answer for that. Should we, should we ask Twitter to go out and crowdsource this scouting? I think. I think we could send Ryan an email and, and get his opinion on it. <laughs> he can do his math. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we also had uh, Freddie Peralta uh, started the finale against Colorado. He went four innings. He gave up six. He had issues with walks again and getting hit. Um, James, how long do you think they can stick with Peralta uh, in the rotation? Because he's, you know, he got sat down for a little bit with his little I, you know, IL stint, but they haven't sent him to AAA yet. Do they need to send him down to AAA at this point? Um, I mean, I don't know how much longer you can keep running him out there. I think the issue is, you know, with Chase Anderson on the IL, they may not have any other options at this point to start. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the same problem with Burns where he's, just leaving that fastball center cut right down the middle. And even more so than Burns, guys aren't just missing that. Um, you know, and then there's the whole first inning thing, too, if you want to believe that's a thing of guys struggling in the first inning. Um, you know, that's bitten him a bunch of times, too, where you have those. He, he just gets off to such a bad start, and then he's up over 30 pitches in the first inning, and that just kind of snowballs from there. Um but, you know, that was kind of an issue last year, too. But then he was always able to kind of rebound and put together four or five solid innings after that. This year, you know, you're, it seems like he's kind of lucky to get through one one two three inning. Um, you know, it, it's still early in the year, but I don't know if I would give him the amount of patience I was willing to give Corbin Burns just because he seems to be so limited to just being fastball only. Um, so I think. I honestly don't know how much longer they can keep him in there, but they may not have another choice unless they start Birch Smith or something like that. Yeah, Birch Smith uh, just got the call up after the 18-inning game. They obviously needed some more arms. Uh, Taylor Williams was optioned. Jay Jackson was designated for assignment. And, and Smith, who's been starting in AAA, got the call up. 
JP, do you have any kind of a scouting report on Birch Smith? Did you know no. his name before I just said it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he actually was with the Padres most recently. It, well, actually, he might have been with the Royals, too. So he might have pitched for both of them. Um, but other than that, you know, there are a lot of guys. You could just say a name and say they were with the Royals or with the Padres. And I think most people would go, sure. I'd buy you, it. Yeah. You know what? And I looked at that 2013. He was up with the Padres. 2018, he was up with the Royals. So I will expect my check from you later, Steve, for knowing that off the top of my head. The other thing to to know is Birch Smith is not spelled like a birch tree. It's with you, not an I. I have so it, I, I have it correctly on the rundown. I know. And so the other thing to to think about too, when you're looking at Birch Smith, is um like the more and more that they've had to kind of cycle through all of these guys through kind of triple A and and the big leagues, they consistently have to DFA guys that don't have options. And they're reliant upon a lot of these guys accepting uh, kind of trips down to, to AAA, right? I mean, that's that's the case with, with Patrika. That's the case with, uh, I would assume, with Jay Jackson if he ends up, like, getting through the DFA. Do you Have we heard anything about whether or not they're planning to accept roles in AAA? I mean, in some ways, you're like, well, I don't blame them for looking elsewhere, but I also would think that they could feel pretty confident that the Brewers are one of the places in which they should expect to come back up to the big leagues at some point if they are a triple A. Well, yeah. And I think this was partly just an issue of they played an extra game and they just needed arms to cover. So I don't know, maybe they just let him know, like, we just need to get somebody up here right now, but hold on and we'll get you back up to the bigs. I have no idea, but it doesn't help when you play 18 innings. So if you had to guess, so uh, Bert Smith has 114 big league innings. Do you want to guess what his uh, career big league ERA is? Five. Yeah, five to six. I don't know. Six, seven, seven. Five. Ah, yeah. I would have gone like 590. Yeah, no, he was 692 last year. He was. Uh, he has a career negative 0.8 war pitcher. So this should be exciting that the Birch Smith era is starting in Milwaukee. Uh, we did have earlier this week, Adam McKelvey asked uh, Craig Council about losing Derek Johnson and whether or not that has is having an effect on the staff. So we're going to go to that clip uh, right now. Do, do you think the change in pitching coach has anything to do with these guys um, just struggling to get into the season? That transition had anything to do with what's going on? No, I, I mean... I don't. I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, I think Chris has done a really good job. I think he's adapted really fast to the hitters in the big leagues. He's not really on point with our scouting reports. Um, you know, he's he's familiar with a big group of our staff. Um, I think that's helped him kind of come into this, and that was that was part of the thing we, we thought was an advantage coming into this. Very familiar with this. Uh, a group that we've, we've leaned on heavily. So, um, you know, we, we, we just haven't pitched well enough. You know, we really, really have. Council obviously isn't going to throw his pitching coach under the bus at the moment, but Hook's been with the organization for a while. He pitched in class, or he, he pitched. <laughs> he coached in, in A and AA uh, for 10 years, and then he was elevated to the minor league uh, pitching coordinator last year. So he's worked with Burns, Hauser, Peralta, Taylor Williams, Brandon Woodruff, you know, Jimmy Nelson. Um, is there any reason why the club would not have long-term confidence in Chris Hook? What do you think, James? No. <laughs> I mean, um, obviously they brought him up because, I mean, that was a big part of the reason why he got the job is because he was familiar with Woodruff and Burns and Peralta and all the young pitchers they expected to pitch in the rotation this year and do well. Um, if anybody has any insight on what might be – ailing them it would probably be the guy that's seen them through you know ever since they were first in the system um you know i think a lot of a lot of the blaming it on Derek johnson leaving is just a convenient excuse um doesn't help that the reds are pitching really well but also the reds have good pitchers like luis castillo is finally pitching like he's capable of and sonny gray's an all-star um you know, it wasn't a scenario where 
the Brewers didn't want to retain Derek Johnson either. You know, obviously, if they had their choice, he'd still be there. Um, he just got a better offer and he got a dream job and he moved on. You know, that happens in any industry. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to move on from Chris Hook yet. I mean, it's a bad month. That's probably to be expected with a young pitching staff. Yeah, and we, we have a question on Twitter from Jay Google. He asks, uh, was it a mistake to start the season with three young pitchers in the rotation? Or if not a mistake, should it at least be second-guessed at this point to start with three? Uh, should the team have let Burns or Peralta start in AAA and allow one of them to gain some success? Uh, what do you think, JP? Was there a bit of a flawed plan to start the season? I mean, no. Well, who were you going to bring in? Right? I mean, are you was the argument to... You know, I guess Dallas Keuchel's still out there, but like Dallas Keuchel hasn't signed for anybody, and there are plenty of teams that that need pitching. So there are a lot of questions about, uh, you know, is it just contract related that Dallas Keuchel can't necessarily find a job? Um, we'll see as this ends up kind of moving forward. But I think the only really argument could be like, should you have just tried to re-sign Gio Gonzalez because that ended up just being, you know, what they ended up turning to anyway. But at some point you have to be able to say we are going to commit to younger pitchers and we're going to have to give it a go. If you want to be a small market organization and you want to develop your own talent, you have to be willing to live with the fact that sometimes things go sideways. And, you know, the Rays have been somebody that have done that for years in which they're willing to, to kind of go with guys and they're willing to uh, deal with, you know, somewhat the bumps and bruises throughout the course of a year. And, holistically i think a lot of people because uh you know a there aren't too many Rays fans uh respectfully um that most of the time people don't follow the Rays day to day and so they end up looking at them at the end of the season they see the aggregate numbers and they say oh that worked out and oh we admire their you know their ability to work within a really small budget um they're willing to kind of go to this unorthodox pitching style in which they take guys that you know, your, your Torinos is your guys like Jalen Beeks and guys like that that most people necessarily haven't heard of. And they're willing to deal with the fact that sometimes they don't pitch all that well. And sometimes they end up surprising like last year. But thinking about Derek Johnson a little bit more, uh, I, would, I just wanted to, to kind of have two quick points on it. Uh, number one, there, and the reason why Craig Council says I can't answer that question is there is there is no way to answer that question. There's no way to prove anything about whether or not it's Derek Johnson or not. It's an entire. It's basically an entire argument that's based on whether or not it feels reasonable. Um, because I don't know how you argue against it. I also don't know how you argue for it other than pointing at what the Reds are doing. But that's like, you know, that's similar to when everybody points at the CC Sabathia almost perfect game in Pittsburgh and pretends like the rest of the game would have gone the exact same way had the first, you know, air hit gone differently. Like you can't do that with history. Life doesn't work that way. And the other thing is the Reds uh, are, you know, there's something kind of going on. Like, yes, Luis Castillo is, is doing well. Yes. Sonny Gray is doing well. Yes. Anthony DiSclefani seems to be pitching well. They also ha all have batting average on balls and play under 265. And I don't necessarily know, like Sonny Gray's uh, DRA, DRA looks good. Jonathan Judge was actually on Twitter today saying that if you actually look at the DRA for the Brewers pitching staff, it's actually about league average. It's not all that bad. So there's a lot of moving parts that are going on here. I would imagine that this is something we talked a lot about in terms of Derek Johnson. The, the, the team has a pitching philosophy and they have an entire organization that works on pitching. It's not all built around one person. Derek Johnson wasn't coming in and bringing all of his own ideas. It was the entire front office was working with him. And so if they're going to bring in Chris Hook, Chris Hook doesn't get to come in and just change everything. There is an organizational philosophy there to be able to come in and work within. So, no, I don't think Chris Hook. I think if they bring in Chris Hook, they like what he has to offer. They like the way that he communicates their ideas, and they like how he works with the young pitchers, and I think they're going to give him more time to do that. James, do you think that from Brewers fans' perspective that the history of their uh, inability to develop pitching is kind of working against them at the moment? Because I think, you know, people are excited about getting a bunch of young pitchers in there, but the moment that they aren't pitching well, everybody just figures, well, it's the same Brewers uh, development system. They're just not going to get these guys together at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you're talking to the biggest Manny Parra fan in the world, right? Like, I was convinced that he was going to be amazing. You know, he throws 95 from the left side, but, you know, that, that just doesn't work out sometimes. So, yeah, I think it's maybe, I mean, it, it's understandable from a fan's perspective if you see Corbin Burns get lit up in his first four or five starts. Oh, oh God, here we go again, you know. Um, at the same time, you know, we need to remember that Corbin Burns is a significantly more talented pitcher than Manny Parra was probably, um, you know, and, and I think that that worry about pitching prospects just never panning out. I mean, Jimmy Nelson turned out okay, but it was a rough, what, two, three, even four years before we even got to that point. I mean, guys talk about all the time, like player development, development is not linear. You know, there's going to be two steps forward, one step back. Maybe we just started with the step back with all these three pitchers. And I think going back to that question on if it was a mistake to to roll with all three of those pitchers, I think on some level it was a calculated gamble on David Stern's part, knowing probably that he got as far as he could with the guys like Gio Gonzalez and Wade Miley in the rotation. If you're going to take the next step and be a championship contender, you need those next level contributors you need Corbin Burns to pitch like that third or second starter um you need Freddie Peralta to pitch like he did last year you know and and that would have been a a big improvement over what they even what they got in Gio and Miley last year um just happens that you know all three of them didn't pan out at the same time and I think he he they had a plan for if things went wrong with maybe one or two of those guys, you could always slide Chase Anderson back into the rotation. But um, when all three of them flame out, Chase Anderson gets hurt, then you're kind of stuck in this little quagmire. Well, I don't think that they actually planned. uh, And this is just speculation. I don't think they planned on Freddie Peralta actually starting the year in the rotation. I I would imagine they probably would have thought that Chase Anderson was going to be that guy. Right. You go back to spring training. I think that was, I I would have picked Freddie to be the odd man out there, you know, but I think they all, all three of those guys pitched as such in spring where it was really hard to deny those guys the opportunity. And Chase Anderson pitched quite poorly. Uh, I mean, yeah, his mechanics were still a mess. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing too, to, to, and this is like something I kind of, I wasn't being serious about at the time, but this is something that we talked about in a previous podcast where we were talking about Derek Johnson moving to Cincinnati. And I was saying that there were a lot of indicators that this, the, the pitching staff that the Brewers had last year overperformed in a lot of different ways. And I kind of was, I, I, I said that because Wade, Wade Miley was an ace. Are you saying that's an overperformance? Well, he's actually, pitch pretty well i didn't say he's i didn't say he can't be good but he was a straight ace last season when once they finally got him on the mound absolutely and and so i kind of jokingly said like derek johnson realized that that was probably the zenith of his reputation and he was going to cash in when he had a moment right instead of like letting the the brewers pitchers kind of come back down to earth a little bit and he doesn't look like a genius um but and now you know he, if he wanted to go and tell somebody else that he wanted to move away from the Reds, he'd probably get another record payday. And uh, But I think that one of the things that we've talked about for the past probably two years, three years maybe, is that everybody on the Brewers pitching staff has a high volatility rate. They have a, a pretty high, the vast majority of them have a pretty high ceiling, but they have a, a low floor. And we've seen the last two years that enough of them have been able to, to kind of overperform or at least perform on kind of the high side of their volatility rates uh, in a very positive direction. And then we kind of look at that as saying like, you know, I think the entire argument, and this is something that we had not to like rehash everything that we had over the, the off season, but like everything about the Brewers having a good staff this year was all based on a theory about the bullpen and about kind of collective depth. It wasn't really anything about individual pitchers that everybody said that we were confident that these pitchers were going to do well. Um, you know, if you went down the line, you said, do you see a scenario in which Corbin Burns could have had a four five or a five year array? You would have said, yeah, absolutely. I could see that. Same thing with Woodruff. Same thing with, with Peralta. Same thing with uh, Chase Anderson. Like Junior Guerra pitched himself to AAA a couple of years ago. Like you could see a scenario and, and, 
you know, what was it? Zach Davies, basically everybody on Twitter wanted him out of the entire organization for part of last year. Um, like you could see all of these guys having downsides and it was an argument about they're amassing this kind of depth and the strategy that they're going to use is going to allow them to outperform that volatility rate. And I think that this year we're seeing that maybe that's not the case. By the way, Zach Davies is in the eighth inning and he's on the mound, which is amazing when you're watching the Brewers to the idea that a starter is actually still out there. Who's the last starter that went eight eight innings this year for the Brewers? Happened this year. Oh, God. I was doing an interview with with Trini at the time. Was that Peralta? Yeah, that was that Peralta start. It was Peralta's game in Cincinnati. Yeah, so... uh, (laughs) So see, right? Like Freddie Peralta, as much as we're saying, can you tolerate him in the in the rotation? He's had like absolute gems this year at times. Yeah, uh, we do have. Well, I guess it's more the story of the fits and starts of Jimmy Nelson's rehab. He was scheduled last week to make his uh, return in AAA. Uh, his wife delivered her twins early, so he had to take some time off for that. He was supposed to get his start uh, today, and it looks like they have they had a double header scheduled, and it's another couple rainouts. So hopefully soon Jimmy Nelson begins his rehab and then maybe we can start our four to six week uh, tracking of when he can return to the, the rotation. Yeah. And I, I will say I, I highly doubt that he listens uh, to the podcast at all, but a uh, huge congratulations to Jimmy Nelson on, on, on two healthy kids. Yeah. So um, I don't want to blow past that. Yes. Congratulations on all of that. I was just going <laughs> to, he's like, he's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about stats. Let's talk about Taylor Williams being optioned. Let's go. Okay. I just, I was going to get to the last question we got uh, from uh, Paul Martin on Facebook. um, And he asked on a scale of one to 10, how important is it that the Brewers finish a brutal March and April with a record of 17 and 14? And we had some pretty dire moments that we were talking about in this past month. I mean, and we get to see a 17 and 14 record uh, coming out out of that stretch. So how important was it? to be above 500 finishing that that month i mean you you can't win a, a division or a, get a playoff spot in april but you can play yourself out of it and i think especially early in the year with pitching the way it's been if you can get through any month over 500 it's a plus i mean especially in a year when it looks like a playoff team in the national league it's so stacked I mean, conceivably, a team with less than 90 wins could get a wild card spot. If you think about it, it that's, what, two to three games over 500 every month, and you're in really good shape heading toward the end of the year. So I think, you know, the, the idea being, yeah, the, the pitching's not where they want it to be right now, but if you can muddle through April and May, two to three games over a piece, suddenly you're into June and July and you're still in the thick of the race, that's when you can kind of make some big improvements granted with the farm system in the state it's in i don't know what they could do but you know that's just kind of the key of of the season and it kind of goes back to the depth right where you just get through every month get through every month over 500 and you're a playoff contender jp do you want to comment on the fact that zach davies is going to go over probably 120 pitches today it'll be fine He's he's uh, the guy you can do that with, mind. right? <laughs> oh, here comes counsel. He he's proven me wrong. He's going to pull him at 117. Awesome. Um, I think. Well, this is something that uh, on Twitter I so was having a conversation with somebody in which they were talking about the the poor pitching performance of the Brewers, and we were just kind of talking about how how difficult it's been. And, and of course, as Twitter as want to happen, there was a, a Cubs fan that decided that they wanted to enter the conversation and, and to be able to, to offer an opinion on the Brewers pitching staff. Um, and, and it was a moment to say, like, basically the Brewers pitching staff has gone about as poorly as they could have, right? In, in terms of injuries, in terms of poor performance by youngsters, in terms of Corey Knebel being out, right? Like, Pretty much down the line, there are a lot of really negative things that have happened with the pitching staff. And if they're still over 500, you can get by with that. If the the pitching staff is able to turn it around, you would like to think, especially as Jonathan Judge was saying, like they're not, you know, it is nice to be able to have an actual like DRA number that is is aggregating it rather than Ryan's like weird OPS thing about like <laughs> non-Cardinals and Dodgers thing to be able to show like here's actual like individual pitchers showing that if you aggregate their numbers, it can be uh, a little bit more close to average. Yeah. And 
if they're able to then start producing at that rate or a little bit higher, if they go through a really uh, positive stretch, if Jimmy Nelson is able to come back and it's positive in that way, if, you know, you can go down the line and all of those things and the Brewers are able to still have the offense that they have, they'll be just fine and they'll be able to keep going forward. And of course, the Cubs have their own pitching uh, pitching issues that can uh, potentially crop up from from uh, time to time, I suppose you would say, in a more charitable fashion. Yeah, you know, in fantasy, I, I drafted you Darvish late in our league, and he has been trash. He has been garbage. So another reason for me to just absolutely loathe the Cubs. The moment I want to rely on them, it's just it never works out. So. Well, and their bullpen has had so many issues that we talked about. Brandon Morrow was on basically ready to come back and start his, his rehab outing, and then he got shut down with an elbow injury again. So Yeah, but he's not, not on my fantasy team, so it doesn't directly affect me. I'm not worried that's about that point. one as much. That's uh, one. <laughs> so anyways, we're going to wrap up the show for this week. Uh, hey, James, do you want to give us your uh, Twitter handle and where we can uh, catch everything you write? Yeah, I'm at James L. That's J-A-Y-M-E-S-L. Uh, you can find me on BrewCrewBall.com, SB Nation. You know, if your parents actually didn't put a Y in your name, you probably wouldn't have got that tr- Twitter handle. Yeah, probably not. No, I'd I, I would something real boring. Yeah. yeah, I would imagine like James L., like the regular James, was taken a long time ago. You'd have to be something like probably. Yeah, yeah, you know. Runner at second. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I'd have to go by Jim or something, you know? Who wants to do that? Jimmy L. So, okay. Hey, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the M&B and Ball and Glove levels receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at tailgate. You can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, wherever else you listen to podcasts, we should be there. Uh, you can also leave reviews, and that helps people find the podcast. So thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.